accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Pipeline politics continues to boil for a second straight week as the fate of the Trans Mountain expansion hangs in the balance. To discuss that and more, Global BC's Keith Baldry, the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer, and BC Today's Shannon Waters. Later in the show, Education Minister Rob Fleming joins us. Good morning, a great day here in Kamloops so far, so a perfect one to turn up the radio and listen to a good discussion about the week that was in provincial politics. Always a pleasure to talk to and be joined by this morning, Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer and Shannon Waters. Welcome all. Good morning. So uh, guys, why don't we start off with the Trans Mountain uh, and we'll kind of work our way back through the week. Uh, Yesterday, an interesting move after question period as Mike DeYoung attempted to uh, trigger an emergency debate in the House, uh, an hour's worth in order to uh, talk about, discuss, debate the jurisdiction court case on the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what the strategy here was, and maybe you can shed some light, Keith. Maybe he was trying to to put them on the spot to pry out the reference question. Uh, Your thoughts? Yeah, it's, you know, every now and then the opposition tries something like this in the vain hope that it's actually going to succeed. Uh, the world wasn't going to change if there was going to be a debate on this, or it wasn't going to change if there wasn't going to be a debate on this. And, and Mike Farnworth's response, I thought, was a valid one, is that we've spent question, every question period for two or three weeks talking about the Trans Mountain Pipeline project to various degrees. They spent 40 hours, uh, almost 40 hours, in uh, spending estimates debate for the Environment Ministry, in which this could have been uh, raised at some point. Uh, Dion had one valid point. The the reference case uh, is coming on April 30th. We still don't know what form it's going to take, and I think he was legitimately trying to find a way to see if we could uh, get some more information on that, but this is really, I think, a, you know, insider baseball. Mm. It gets excited in the hallway when there's an emergency debate, but <laughs> it doesn't really have an impact on people. All right, so the reference question is pretty key. We know they're, the David Eby said they're they're going to begin the court process April 30th. Vaughn, any idea what this reference question is going to be? What it's going to look like? No, in fact, they've all they told us. They did tell us one thing this week. <laughs> they told us which court they're going to go to. So provincial government has an option of taking the matter to the B.C. Supreme Court, or they can jump up one level and go to the Court of Appeal. They cannot go all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. Only Ottawa can do that. So they're going to the B.C. Court of Appeal, but they've said they have two options. One option would be to go to the court and essentially ask a question or questions about how much leeway the province has with its jurisdiction over the environment to regulate the movement of bitumen through the province by pipeline, through coastal waters by tankers or through the province by rail. So they could ask some general questions around that. Uh, The other option is to present to the court a series of regulations, what the province is actually going to do on all that stuff, and uh, say, okay, you know, can we do this? Um, I don't know if they're going to do that or not. Uh, The regulations would be a better way to go because if the, if some of the regulations pass, then the province could proceed. Uh, the trouble with the general questions is that, of course, that may be more of a delaying action because you get general answers back from the courts, and then you draft your regulations, and then those are subject to court challenge. So if you think that what's really going on here, Shane, is that the government is trying to drag this thing out as long as it possibly can, uh, you probably go with the general questions and leave the regs to later. If you're actually trying to get an answer within a reasonable time frame, like two years, um, Mm -hmm. you drag it out, uh, you go for the expedited reason. 
Shannon, is there, I know this is a court matter, a jurisdictional uh, issue, a constitutional challenge. In your mind, is there any onus on the provincial government to release publicly the reference question prior to court? Well, EB, Attorney General EB has basically said that as soon as possible, they will provide the information about what they're doing. I mean, it will open them up to, um, you know, to the opposition being able to scrutinize, well, are they taking a productive approach to this? Is the question solid? Do they really have any jurisdiction here? I agree with Vaughn that the regulations would probably be the way to go, especially if they are intent on sort of fast-tracking the issue with which the move to the Court of Appeal um, somewhat su- suggests. Now, they will have to file formally um, their application with the court to have the question of the regulations heard, and they have to give notice to the federal government as well. So it will become public at some point, whether or not they actually make sort of an announcement and give the media some access to the attorney general when they actually know what they're going to be doing. I don't know at this point. I really don't. Yeah, I don't think any of us do. Uh, Keith, uh, we talked a little bit about this last week, but we've had another week's worth of of news. Uh, Kinder Morgan, of course, addressing investors. It seems to be striking something of a hard line over certainty and forging ahead with the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, This court process is going to disregard their their May 30th or May 31st deadline. Uh, So, I mean, the the base question here is, is the pipeline really in trouble? Well, I think financially it may be in trouble from Kinder Morgan's perspective. I mean, they are, I think they are playing some pretty hardball uh, financial politics here with uh, the second uh, missive from the CEO talking about the pro- project perhaps being untenable. Uh, you know, but Kinder Morgan's got everybody over the proverbial oil barrel here. Uh, Justin Trudeau, again, re- uh, yesterday in Europe, uh, reasserting his uh, claim that the pipeline will be built, his assurance that it will be built. So he's gone all in on this thing, as is Rachel Notley, and they've now talked about uh, having a financial stake in this thing. So Kinder Morgan, three months ago, nobody would even entertain the idea of the federal and Alberta governments putting tax dollars into this project, but that's exactly what's on the table right now. BC's actions are sort of in a separate ballpark, because it's simply a reference case that's going to wind its way through the court uh, uh, process, and it's going to take some time. But that May 31st deadline is much more real impact on the Trudeau and Notley governments to, sh- to get down and talk to uh, Kinder Morgan, which is what's happening right now. Uh, they are in discussions uh, with uh, Kinder Morgan, and they may go it alone themselves. But uh, Kinder Morgan's very much driving the bus here and calling the shots, and the governments are responding to Kinder Morgan more than Kinder Morgan's responding to the governments. Yeah, no, true. Vaughn, uh, your, your take on this, is Kinder Morgan really going to pull the plug, you think? I think they would. I don't think they're bluffing. Um, they rather than start spending two or three hundred million dollars a month, as they would if they were going to build this thing, and and maybe be stopped by uh, regulatory harassment or any other things here in Canada. I think they've decided that they're going to have certainty or they're not going to start. Um, and I think that's the reason the national government is entering into serious talks with them about. Canada either building the project or indemnifying the company against financial risk. I think that's why Alberta's in. Um, you know, I think we're headed to a situation where we may see governments building this project. Uh, governments, as, as we've said, build all kinds of things in this country, current and past, all kinds of infrastructure. Um, they should be able to figure out a way to make a, an oil pipeline uh, pay for itself in the long run. So uh, that may be the way we're headed. Or it may simply be an indemnity agreement. But I don't think you're going to get the company to start construction unless it is absolutely sure that construction will be finished.
Shannon, uh, same question to you. I'm just curious whether you think they're going to walk away. And then sort of a sub-question is uh, if they do indemnify or pour a lot of tax money or buy into the project, uh, will that trigger a whole other sort of level of debate uh, slash, I don't know, I guess rage from some uh, on this pipeline issue? Well, it sounds like it certainly could. I mean, the recent Angus Reid poll that was showing that while most Canadians are now sort of on board with the pipeline, they think it should be built, including here in British Columbia, um, 70% of people in B.C. think that putting taxpayer money into the project is a bad idea. That's also true for Manitoba. And even over in Alberta, about half of people who were polled said, we don't, we don't want to put public money into this project. Now, we've started to hear rumblings, though, that the federal government, while they would like to forge ahead with Kinder Morgan, they're, you know, talking to them right now, they'd like to keep them at the table. There's some suggestion that the federal government feels that even if Kinder Morgan walks away from the project, that they could find another company to kind of take it over and partner in some way with the federal government and or the governments of Alberta. And my understanding is there's also been First Nations groups in northern Alberta who have said, you know, we'd be happy to put some money forward to keep this project going. So Kinder Morgan's certainly gotten everybody moving with this May 31st mm-hmm. deadline, with the exception, you know, possibly of the government here in B.C. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, First Nations issue, Keith, I, I noticed you retweeted uh, a tweet this morning talking about the Musqueam down the lower mainland changing their tune. Yeah, so that was brought to my attention by Ernie Cray, who's the uh, First Nations leader for the TM uh, ban in uh uh, in the Fraser Valley, and Ernie's been drawing a lot of heat on social media by pointing out that his uh, that a number of First Nations bands uh, in BC, more than thirty, support the Kinder Morgan pipeline, including a fair number of them of, that are actually on the route of the pipeline, and that not all First Nations oppose it, which is the impression left by news conferences in which Grand Chief Stuart Phillips of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs presides over. So there's a real, I think, a schism that's developed in in the First Nations community where uh, some First Nations see uh, benefits agreements with Trans Mountain as a way to lift a number of their members out of a grinding poverty situation and that uh, they don't oppose the pipeline. But there is still a lot of opposition to the pipeline from a lot of First Nations. So we're seeing a split in that community. I think that split's going to become more evident it's going to become wider, and it's going to get more attention uh, as this uh, de- debate goes on, because the stakes are huge for, for whether you support it or not support it. It's a, it's a real big uh, economic and philosophical question for a, a number of First Nations. But Ernie Cray's view is, look, there is not one monolithic view of 203 First Nations. Every First Nation is, has the right to express its own view yeah. on this pipeline project. No other First Nation speaks for another First Nations. But when he makes that, uh, those distinctions on social media, notably on Twitter, boy, oh boy, the backlash he gets is quite significant. Uh, the Premier made this, uh, a similar distinction earlier this week. Uh, here in the interior, chiefs are going to meet uh, mid-next month to try and figure out ways to lobby for the pipeline. Uh, is this sort of tilt the table, Vaughn? Look, there's a huge political, constitutional, and legal dilemma in this case, which is, does it have to be unanimous? Uh, You're going to get, as we have here, a bunch of First Nations that are supportive and a bunch of First Nations that are opposed, but can the ones that are opposed stop the whole pipeline? Because you obviously aren't going to build a pipeline in segments. And Horgan got asked about that this week. 
too, Shane, and he gave an ambiguous answer. He got asked, well, what about all the ones that support? And he says, basically, well, what about all the ones that are opposed? So does it have to be unanimous? Mm. Uh, the Horgan government has already dealt with this issue on Site C. There were two holdout bans there that are still in court challenging the thing. The government, nevertheless, is going ahead and building Site C. But, you know, I think it's one that no court in the country, no national government really wants to address this problem, but it's a genuine and real problem. There are 203 First Nations in British Columbia. Does every single one of them have a veto over every single development within their traditional territory? And look at the problem that arose with the Lax-Qualams and the proposed LNG terminal in Port Edward. The band supported the project. A breakaway group in the band occupied the island, and that was enough to stop the project. So yeah. I, this is not an easy question, and I can tell you that any time the provincial government's been asked this question, they run for the hills. They don't want to talk about it, but it's a huge problem to developing things in this country. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, as this First Nations issue defines itself or sort of further clarifies itself, Shannon, does that turn up the heat on the, on the Premier and his stance opposing the pipeline or no? Um, I don't I don't know that it necessarily does as long as sort of the debate continues. I mean, obviously, if more and more First Nations groups begin sort of coalescing on one side of the argument, I do think that that would, you know, apply more pressure. Um, Horgan's been talking a big game about, you know, true reconciliation and government to government relations with First Nations. So if they do start to move in one direction or the other, I, it could apply some pressure. But the other thing is, again, you know, as it's been said that it's not a homogenous group of people, um, the First Nations in this province and, and some of the First Nations that are being counted as being supportive of the project are are maybe not quite as on board as as you know some people have said. I believe it was the Lower Nicola Band has now come out and said, well, you know, we do have an agreement with Kinder Morgan at this point in time, but it's a conditional agreement, and we have not yet decided whether we will proceed with a final one. So even those who are being counted among the number of supporters are you know maybe not quite settled in their position either. Absolutely. Uh, let's take a quick break, guys, uh, and uh, here on Inside Politics and Radio NL. On the other side, we'll talk proportional representation. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome. Each of We're the talking. Mountain peaks above Switzerland's oh, Lauterbrunnen Valley has a unique. <laughs> a little faux pas there. Uh, we're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Shannon Waters. Guys, uh, the Liberals changed things up in QP yesterday. They've been hammering away at the Trans Mountain Pipeline issue. They began to really torque on the proportional representation. And I think uh, they may have a very valid point in the fact that we're about, what, six or so months away from this voting day on this referendum. Uh, as we stand right now, we don't know what the ballot question will be. We don't know how the campaign will be run. We don't know what rules will govern that campaign. Like, everything quite literally is a question mark and you need an appropriate amount of time to run a good referendum concerning Vaughn? Yes, you're enormously concerning. And, you know, the government, first of all, is falling behind on, on their schedule this spring. They've got a very ambitious agenda. And as happens when you get into government, it takes a long time to get stuff through the pipeline. So that's one thing that's happened. And, and there is has to be some understanding there that the reason they haven't gotten all this through is because they're having trouble getting everything through. Second thing is, is I don't think there's any question that the New Democrats are doing absolutely everything they can to stack the deck in favor of the outcome they want. You know, you can, you can watch... The 
the supposed neutral arbiter on this, Shane, is Attorney General David Eby. Well, look at the answers he's giving in the legislature. Every time Mr. Neutral answers a question on this, he includes a bitter partisan attack on the opposition liberals. So he is no more neutral on this issue than the liberals are, and yet that's who's in charge of producing, quote, a fair and neutral process on this. So the deck is being stacked busily. When they finally decide how they want to stack it, they'll get their question out. But the idea that this is going to be a fair fight is preposterous. If I remember correctly, the HST referendum had about a year before the voting day with a full-fledged campaign, rules governing it at all, uh, roughly about the same for the Metro Vancouver gas tax. As a matter of fact, I remember doing stories with mayors at the time where they went down to the, the United States to look at how referenda were run down there and came back saying we need at least two years for an appropriate referendum. We're now in months here, Shannon. Yeah, and I think that's going to be a big hurdle, particularly for a government that does want to change the system. I mean, when it comes to making a change, as we've seen with um, previous questions on the subject post to the electorate, um, you have to overcome inertia if, if you want to move along to something new. And they're not giving themselves a lot of time to do that. They're also not giving themselves a lot of time for education, which I think is going to be really key around this this system. Um, proportional representation can get really complicated. There are lots of iterations. Um, and getting voters to understand, you know, if they are open or are keen to change the system, what the options are and what it would mean to move to that system is going to take some time. Um, and they're really not leaving themselves very much at all. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I don't care where you are on the issue, whether you're for or against, uh, I think you should be extremely worried, Keith. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and when you're talking about changing the way we, we elect governments in the provinces, it's a huge issue, and it's a, a, it's a fundamental democratic issue, and for the NDP government to literally start leaving this to the 11th hour in terms of providing any details at all, I think is irresponsible and anti-democratic, in fact. And Vaughn's right, they're, they're, they're stacking the deck to ensure an outcome that favors some sort of proportional representation model succeeds. Uh, Bill Tillman, who's an ardent uh, campaigner uh, against previous uh, issues, including the HST and other forms of PR uh, uh, referendums, uh, you know, he, he admits that the hill's a lot steeper for him to climb this time. But he still thinks he can he can get get it done and get people to support and uh, retain the current first past the post system. But you know, Shane, you mentioned the HST referendum. That referendum came again after there was just wall to wall saturation news coverage. Mm-hmm. The referendum of, of the HST. It was a it was a big controversy, and people were talking about it. People were had passionate opinions about it. Nobody's talking about about this referendum. It's not in the news cycle. It's not in the public dialogue. There's not much debate unless you go to some, you know, little meeting that uh, Bill and and pro PR people uh, organize, in which there's a handful of people. But it's not in the headlines. It's not in the TV newscast. It, it probably never will be on TV. But it's uh, it's just not an issue that uh, people are passionate about it yet. It will be eventually, perhaps, but nobody's talking about it right now. And that gives the government basically a free skate here where they can continue to just um, ignore it, not provide any information. And that's one reason why the Liberals brought that up yesterday. Finally got off the Kinder Morgan playbook onto PR. And I think they're going to start hammering away at PR in the in the remaining weeks of the session as well, as well along with the Trans Mountain Pipeline, of course. Keith, should they move the voting day? I think it. Uh, I think there's a couple things wrong with with it. I think the voting day might be too soon. Uh, the other thing is, I think uh, the threshold in which this succeeds is just fifty percent plus one of a, what could be a very low turnout. Yeah, uh, I think is a problem as well. 
Yeah. Uh, really quickly around the horn on this, we only got about a minute left in the segment, but uh, David Eby was quoted in the House uh, yesterday as saying that turnout will be, quote, through the roof, unquote. Well, you're certainly not going to get a through the roof turnout if people aren't talking about it and there isn't an appropriate timed and, and campaign with awareness and all that kind of stuff. Do you think that, uh, that turnout's going to be through the roof, Vaughn? Folks in the north and the interior of British Columbia ever realize how badly this is going to screw them in terms of influence on the government, the turnout should be through the roof there, and that is probably the best bet to defeat this thing. But at the moment, I think the government is doing everything it possibly can to make sure there isn't turnout through the roof. Shannon? I don't think so. I mean, through the roof to David Eby, he was saying that about the consultation process, and you had less than 3% of eligible voters Mm -hmm. in the province who actually even bothered to say anything uh, to offer their thoughts to the government's consultation. So, I mean, if those are his standards, then sure, it might be through the roof. Um, I don't really agree with the definition, though. No, neither do I. Keith, a good turnout or no? No, in fact, I think we could very well have a result where literally 25% of the population or less a vote for PR, and we changed the voting system based on that pathetically low turnout. And again, I think it's it's ridiculous that the, the bar isn't set much higher. Uh, referendums don't necessarily have a high turnout. I'm, I fear the worst, quite frankly. All right, let's take a quick break to the bottom of the hour, get caught up on the news, and on the other side we'll continue our discussion with Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Shannon Waters here on Inside Politics and Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome back. For Kamloops Computer Center. Man, we're having all sorts of audio problems this morning. Uh, Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Shannon Waters. Uh, Guys, a little bit of an unusual uh, situation in the the legislature this week. Is Andrew Weaver uh, a little upset over uh, not being in seat, uh, couldn't table an amendment, uh, and uh, subsequently went on a sort of a mini filibuster, uh, talked for about an hour before he finally sat down. Uh, Shannon, what was at play here, and and, and why did Mr. Weaver choose to do this? Um, he seemed pretty frustrated. He, he initially threatened to talk for two hours, so I guess we were kind of lucky that, that we got off with one. I mean, it really was a situation of his own making. He was late back into the House, he, um, and he missed the chance to move um, an amendment to the Workers' Compensation Amendment Act. He wanted to see its provisions expanded to nurses, possibly teachers, possibly all B.C. workers. Um, but he he was late. It was his own fault, and I think it just, you know, maybe he was having a bad day. Uh, maybe he's particularly frustrated at this point in time. It was certainly um, a little sort of moment of procedural drama in an otherwise fairly quiet day. Yeah, it was an interesting one, uh, and it struck me as what a difference a week makes, Vaughn. I did a story with Andrew just the week previous where he talked about uh, wanting more civility in the House and things uh, to behave in a more adult fashion, and yet uh, not only did he kind of talk for an hour and say some interesting things in that talk, but uh, subsequently uh, sort of had a bit of a shouting tirade at Mary Polak as she stood to respond. Yes. So, uh, Mr. I want to bring better tone to the legislature. Actually, you know, four times in the last few days, so going back to last week, uh, this 
speaker or the chair of debate has had to call Weaver for getting out of line. This is very unusual. It almost never happens. And the speaker, <clears throat> three times the speaker himself has, has told Weaver he's out of line. So, and, and a couple of times Weaver's had to retract. So that, that in itself is a, is a comment on just how out of control he is. Of course, the, the funny thing about the tirade on Tuesday is that he lost it at one point and said, let's have an election. Well, one of the very few people in the legislature, apart from the premier himself, who can actually call an election or arrange for one is Andrew Weaver. All he has to do is withdraw his support for the government and maintain the withdrawal of support. So it's a weird thing for this guy to be threatening an election when he has actually the power to make sure one happens. Uh, but really, um, it, it you know, uh, I did a whole column on it. Les Lane did a whole column on it in the Times columnist. Keith talked about it as well. Um, I've heard back from some Greens saying you're picking on him an unfair. Look, Weaver's behavior is very unusual in the last two weeks. It is rare for a member of the legislature to be asked to withdraw by the speaker even once. Three times? That's unprecedented. Yeah, and I'm told it didn't end there. Uh, people telling me that after the session ended, Andrew Weaver went across the aisle, I guess, to engage some some liberal MLAs and then proceeded to have something of a verbal showdown with some liberal staffers and is now in a process through the Speaker's office to sort of make amends. The Green Party, in a statement, uh, tells me in... Uh, when conflicts or disagreements occur in the legislature, the practice is to go to the Speaker's office. Uh, we're committed to following this confidential practice whenever conflicts or disagreements arise. Uh, Keith. Well, I mean, I, I like Andrew Weaver. I've got a lot of time for him. I think the, the, the Greens in the House add a, di- a dynamic that's been lacking for some time. It's usually a positive one. But, man, he was totally over the line and out of control. Uh, and, again, for a guy who claims to wanted to change the tone and have more civil, he is the, the loudest and most aggressive heckler in the House, often at inappropriate moments. Uh, his his uh, completely over-the-top and out-of-control response to this procedural hiccup, when, as Shannon says, it was his own fault for not being there, and it's his own, fa- his own House leader's fault for not being there as well, ensuring that this... this uh, this slippage of uh, speaking time on amendments didn't happen. Even the, the minister afterwards told me that Weaver was told his amendments were going to be ruled out of order anyways. So it was just a completely unreasonable and uh, overreaction by uh, Mr. Weaver at a time, as Vaughn says, when you get called out by the speaker that many times, that's very unusual. And he was very aggressive to the liberals to the point, I think, of being, again, over the line. Even, I'm, I'm told, even tried to get into their caucus room. I mean, it's just uh, unheard of behavior for a guy, particularly coming from a guy who claims to representing the ac- absolute opposite approach. And I think he's uh, going to be well advised to, to calm down, cool it, and behave a little more professionally in the weeks ahead. we only got a few minutes left. I do want to get into this because I think it's an important issue. Today is the deadline uh, for child care operators to opt into the government child care program. According to Minister of State for Child Care, Katrina Chen, out of the, uh, what, 3,400 child care contracts sent out, about 2,200 have been returned. Uh, 72% of providers have opted in. Uh, today is the deadline. But there does seem to be some confusion over uh, who those who haven't opted in and looking for some kind of clarification. And on top of that, uh, the minister herself, uh, well, I guess floundered might be the best word uh, to use as, as she faced questions and estimates. Shannon? I'm starting to wonder if there's something in the air when it comes to estimates this session. Um, the Ministry of Environment dragged on for nine days and, and was mostly about the Trans Mountain issue and, and the environment, environment ministers, you know, possible ties to 
to activists. Yesterday we had indigenous um, relations and reconciliation going into um, quotations of Star Trek for stretches of time, which was kind of bizarre to listen to. But yes, I mean, there were some very legitimate questions posed by the Liberals' child care critic yesterday to Minister Chen, and she had almost no answers, aside from basically, you know, how many of the contracts they had got back at this point in time, and approximately the number who who had decided to opt in. It, the child care thing, I think a lot of people were really excited about it. Certainly there are many, many British Columbians who want the government to take some kind of action on child care, but the rollout on this new subsidy just seems to have been a bit of a mess. And people are being directed to call the ministry if they have questions and concerns. Um, and there are reports that, you know, they're not getting callbacks and they're on the phone waiting to speak to somebody for hugely long stretches of time. So the amount of frustration is, is just continuing to build. Keith, you, uh, you sat in on estimates. What did you think? Oh, yeah, I sat in the committee room and it was, it was almost absurd at times. Laurie Throness, uh, the BC Liberal critic, was asking, was doing a very effective job at sort of picking away at this this rollout, which was being, was botched, and uh, just trying to, but even trying to get some basic information, he'd ask a question, and the minister would suddenly turn her back and huddle with literally four or five people, including children and family, family, children and family development minister Katrina uh, Conroy, and, and they would spend ten minutes huddled to try to come up with even an answer to a, a basic statistical question. It was, it was either an example of a minister who does not know her file or an example of a program that really is in trouble. And, uh, you know, less than half the, the child care providers out there have uh, have signed up for this thing, and they've raised all sorts of questions. And Jane Thornway, another liberal, asked us some questions on behalf of a North Band child care center that was really worried about uh, uh, signing these contracts and then being tied to uh, uh, rate increases or, or rates that simply weren't supportable in terms of making their company survive. So. There's a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of concern among a lot of daycare providers about this, and hopefully they, it all gets sorted out, but that hasn't been a great performance by the minister in that spending estimate process. No. Uh, final word to you on this, Vaughn. Another rush job public policy initiative where the minister is not up to speed on the actual technical details of the program she's bringing in. She has got her patter down fine for answering partisan questions and question period. When you get into line-by-line scrutiny of her budget, she doesn't know what the heck she's talking about. It, it's a rush job, and it shows. <laughs> All right. Uh, guys, always a pleasure. Uh, Keith, Vaughn, Shannon, thank you so much for your time. Take care. Thanks, uh, There we go. Uh, there we go. Shannon Waters, uh, Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and uh, we'll hopefully chat with them again next week. Uh, we'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. On the other side, my conversation with Education Minister Rob Fleming. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome back. Uh, my hope it would have uh, been to bring you a conversation with Attorney General David Eby, but as with the best laid plans of mice and men, uh, we couldn't pull that one off. Uh, hopefully we'll connect with him in a future show. Uh, I did have a chance to sit down and talk to Education Minister Rob Fleming late yesterday afternoon uh, concerning uh, a wide variety of issues, uh, among them the uh, good news and a first step for some much-needed capital investment here in Kamloops. Let's take a listen to that conversation. 
First things first, uh, this school district, Kamloops, uh, I'm sure you're well aware of their capital needs and, and the projects they, they want uh, your government to, uh, to give it money for, uh, considering the student crunch. It sounds like a first step has been taken uh, with their number one ask, Valley View Secondary. You guys are basically asking for some finite information. Uh, give me an idea of sort of what this means in the, in the scope of getting this project actually completed. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is uh, potentially the best news that Kamloops has had uh, uh, about the, potentially the most significant capital project in 16 years, and one that's much needed, one that uh, a need that I've seen myself, uh, having uh, accepted the invitation of the school district to tour me of this facility and other capital needs in the district. So I'm really pleased that uh, the ministry has been able to work with the school district and that we've given the green light to go towards uh, what's called a project definition stage. And really that's about costing and looking at design elements uh, making sure that uh, any potential addition project like this, which would be significant in the tens of millions of dollars in, in terms of investment scope, uh, is done uh, as efficiently uh, as possible. Uh, the big question here, of course, is uh, you know when will we see shovels in the ground? And I know uh, from talking to you in the past, uh, when you became minister, you were shocked to learn that there was you know essentially nothing in the cupboard as far as any kind of business case. So, in the terms of you know from the beginning to uh, finally getting shovels in the ground, what are we looking at possibly here, Rup? Yeah, I mean, I think that's important. I, I, we certainly would have hoped that there was more evidence of work having been done and left to us as a transitioning new government. The fact is that this project and others uh, potentially in the future were starting at scratch. Uh, there was no invitation by the previous government to, to begin design work or any of those sorts of things that get to an investment decision. Uh, however, uh, we have given the uh, school district a pretty generous timeline to uh, to complete the work uh, before submitting it to the ministry, but we're also telling them, and I think I think the school board chair herself has said that they'd like to uh, greatly uh, uh, come in uh, a lot quicker uh, on that timeline, and and that means that we can proceed to construction quicker. Uh, the school district is essentially, I guess, they're reading the tea leaves in this and saying that they'll uh, they're sort of hoping for a financial investment uh, in their words early 2019. Does that sound about right to you or no? I don't think that's out of the realm at all. I mean, I think when we get a, a business case that government can review uh, together with the school district and we look at uh, all the uh, uh, definitions around uh, what the project will look like, uh, then we're in a position to be able to approve it and go out to procurement and uh, get the interest of the construction sector to, to build a facility that uh, students and families in Kamloops uh, deserve to have. Just out of curiosity, uh, in your term as, as first opposition critic and now minister, any thought as to why uh, it has been so long, 16 years, to see capital investment of this kind filter into, into this particular district? Well, I, I can say, and this will come as no comfort to parents and teachers and uh, support staff and uh, and kids in the district, but I, I can say that Kamloops is not the only district that was neglected for 16 years. That is for sure. Uh, but uh, I also do want you know your listeners to understand that the government has the largest uh, school capital building uh, program in BC history. Uh, we intend to make much needed, uh, long overdue investments in every part of the province uh, uh, where those investments are needed. And uh, Kamloops has made a good case on Valley View Secondary. That's why uh, our government uh, green, gave it the green light to proceed to a project report, and uh, and funding will flow from that. So, uh, you know, I, I told uh, uh, people in Kamloops uh, and in the district that we would work as quickly as we could with them, and I think we're in a good place uh, right now, just uh, just literally uh, seven months since Labor Day uh, when, uh, when we began to talk to the district. 
Uh, and of course, uh, there is three other projects on their capital needs uh, list there, Rob. Any any kind of indicator if you could move on any of them at any point in the future here or no? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we could invite Kamloops uh, at, uh, at some point in the near future to, uh, to, to advance uh, those other projects. The letter that was sent to the district just a couple of weeks ago uh, on this project is, is the first step. There's no question about that. I'm also really pleased, though, that on the piled-up deferred maintenance in the district that we were able to make some investments on uh, health and safety equipment uh, for students and staff, um, dust collection systems, and, uh, you know, a couple of million dollars worth of uh, minor capital investment flowing into the district immediately. Uh, bigger picture, we're coming to the end of a school year where we saw the class size and composition uh, agreement implemented. Uh, I know these things are never easy and there has been some wrinkles along the way. Uh, now we've got a summer to quarters, take a bit of a breath and, and assess and then see what happens in September. Uh, your sort of, uh, you know, your assessment of how the first year went and, and, and any tweaks, anything we need to work on coming for September? I think there are some tweaks, but I, I have to say uh, the school system has performed remarkably well given the scale of the task it was it had handed to us. I mean, 16 years of neglect and, and teacher jobs being eliminated, uh, the education sector really not uh, having any optimism uh, or any interest from people going into, for example, specialist teachers' positions to train for those kinds of jobs, and all of a sudden we had to hire 3,700 teachers. It was a massive challenge. I think the school districts uh, did remarkably well uh, attracting license holders who had uh, gone to teach internationally or out of province. And, uh, and so the good news is, you know, we're, we're more than 96% complete in our high school, uh, in our, in our uh, teacher hiring. Uh, we do have more to do. We have postings that are ongoing and active right now. Uh, but I think, I think uh, the way the school system was able to react and, and the speed at which it reacted, uh, very, very good sign. And I think, I think the, the mood in the, uh, in the school system today is vastly different than it was a year or two ago. Uh, we have a government that's investing hundreds of millions of dollars into the school system that's looking to support kids, teachers, and support staff. Uh, and, uh, and we have the proof of that in, the, in, a, in what has been a very strong school year. Going into school year this September, you're also going to be beginning the uh, the stages of bargaining with the BCTF. We want to see uh, somebody at the table, hopefully this fall. I know you've uh, been on the opposition side of many of these bargaining sessions. This is going to be your first as minister. Uh, any thoughts on, on this bargaining process to come as we kind of see it beginning to form out there? Well, I think the government is a long way away from, uh, you know, consideration around the bargaining mandate, but it's also had a number of discussions with uh, public sector unions uh, in every part of, of government, including the school system. So it's begun to build a relationship there. It's, it's uh, you know, committed to the principles around respect and good faith at the bargaining table. I think that will stand us in good stead. Uh, we restored in the uh, school sector elected trustees as part of the uh, employer bargaining agency. Uh, so those representatives will have to get reelected uh, in uh, in the fall when when school board elections occur again. But I think the capacity uh, in the public sector agencies uh, to prepare for bargaining uh, is solid, and I think uh, our finance minister Carol James has uh, put all the right uh, pieces in place uh, to be able to conclude uh, agreements with uh, public servants who perform really incredibly important work each and every day to keep us safe and to teach our kids and, and all of the sorts of things that uh, a dynamic public service provides. Are we going to see traditional uh, bargaining, Robin? By what I mean by that is uh, I mean, the Liberal government fired BCPC and Peter Fassbender went to the table directly in the last go-around. Uh, I assume we're going to see something a little different this time? 
Well, we've already uh, signaled a different direction. I mean, we we, we thought that was a mistake and uh, created a polarized uh, bargaining situation. It's one of the things that contributed to Christy Clark and her government uh, uh, creating the longest school shutdown and disruption in B.C. history. Um, So what we have done uh, in working with uh, elected school board officials is reconstituted uh, a component of trustees directly at the bargaining table. It makes sense. The the 60 school boards are, in fact, the 60 employers uh, of uh, teachers and support staff in B.C. It's essential to have their voices and experience uh, influencing uh, provincial bargaining, and that's exactly what we've done. All right, perfect. Hey, last question. Uh, on the health payroll tax, as you're aware, school districts have, have been complaining that this is going to add uh, wipe out the MSP savings and add a significant chunk annual cost. I think it's about 250000 here in Kamloops uh, and then elsewhere across the province. Uh, any thought on, on some kind of relief or, or exemption there, Rob, or no? I think those are discussions that are ongoing. Um, you know, certainly... Uh Finance Minister Carol James is is looking at as a public sector issue uh, that uh, doesn't just affect uh, school districts. I've certainly been hearing some issues, or sorry, uh, some opinions from uh, school district leaders about that. Many of them have realized that uh, in the context of uh, millions of dollars of return savings on uh, pension plans and broadband internet service that the government has given back to schools to uh, to invest in uh, classroom learning, uh, that they can manage it. Uh, there are others who. Uh, uh, continue to want to have uh, some discussion with government about how it might uh, best be uh, transitioned from the old regressive uh, MSP tax to to the new uh, EHT. So no promises, but basically stay tuned. Yes. <laughs> All right, good to talk to you, man. Okay, take care, Shane. There you go. Education Minister Rob Fleming uh, talking about a wide range of issues. Uh, my thanks to my guests on the show today, Vaughn Palmer, Shannon Waters, Keith Baldry, and Education Minister Rob Fleming. We'll see you again here on Radio NL on the next edition of Inside Politics next Friday. The Valley's first choice for local news. CHNL 610 AM in Kamloops and streaming online at RadioNL.com.